What is crack a lackin' hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you with some mail talk. We have another mailbag. It's gonna be the first of two mailbags this week. I might start doing two mailbags per week. I, I always want to shoehorn all the questions into one uh, episode, but multiple episodes is probably better this time of year. And also I get such good questions from Discord, our Discord members that have me searching for answers or thinking about this for hours and prepping. Um, that they deserve their own mailbag. So that's what this is. We have a ton of fun, interesting questions on this one. Before we get started, please, please, pretty please remember to subscribe to us however you're consuming us. If you're on YouTube, I beg you, hit that subscribe button, like, and comment. Help us break the algorithm. It helps us out a ton. Also, please subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcast: Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this right now. That helps us out as well. Join our Discord. The link is in the podcast and YouTube descriptions, as are all the social handles for this podcast, including my own and Grant Hughes's and even Adam's around these parts. Still friends. We're all friends around here. Mail time, though. Let's cannonball into it. Uh, just want to begin with some very quick and disheartening news items, obviously. First one up is uh, Miles Bridges is facing three felony domestic violence charges after being accused of assaulting his girlfriend in front of their two tr- children last month per the Los Angeles County District Attorney on Tuesday night. Uh, the only reaction to this for me is I feel bad for his son. We saw that he was on the video um, talking about uh, daddy choking mommy. That was absolutely gut-wrenching. And also to uh, Michelle, his girlfriend, the mother of their two children, I hope that she's okay. I hope the two children are okay. That's the only reaction to have at this point. There are implications for the Hornets and Miles Bridges' future. They just don't, don't fucking matter compared to this. Uh, domestic violence is a real issue. We can wait and see how it plays out. I don't want to hear people if all of a sudden, you know, the charges are dropped or, or he's found quote unquote, you know, I, if the charges are dropped, there's going to be a terrible discourse. The charges, he's officially been charged at this point. Uh, it's a serious matter. And again, the my only reaction, the first reaction, second, third, fourth, fifth reaction to this is I hope that Michelle and the two children involved in this are all going to be okay. Michael Green agreed to a buyout with the Thunder. Not surprising, just given that there was a roster crunch for them. They had like 80 players under contract and still might have 79, and they need to clear that up. You know, you can carry 20 in the offseason, but you need to um, winnow that down in time for the regular season. Uh, so there are still names to watch there to see what happens, maybe some more consolidation moves. Jermichael Green will be joining the Golden State Warriors because they're going to need someone to take the minutes of Jonathan Kaminga and James Wiseman, who will be in Brooklyn next season following the Warriors trade for Kevin Durant. That was a joke. If I got anybody, awesome. Uh, but I like the Jermichael Green signing. He can replace the Bielitsa minutes, maybe some of the Otto Porter minutes. Uh, he's definitely taken a step back the past few years, but in theory, he is someone who can guard the four of the five and is going to hit some threes far from his heyday when he was in Memphis. But uh, I, I like the pickup by by Golden State. And look, there are, we're talking about a lot of injuries and age here. Uh, Kavon Looney has not been the healthiest player until the past two seasons, but more so than that, Draymond Green is getting up there, and then Wiseman, his injuries, and then just the inexperience of both Wiseman and Kaminga. You're going to have, you're going to need veteran reinforcements in the front court. So I like uh, getting Jamichael Green here. I was kind of not hoping, but I, I was curious whether Miami was going to show any interest after losing PJ Tucker. They just might view playing him alongside Bam Adebayo as untenable, or perhaps he just really wanted to Golden State, wanted to go to Golden State. Who knows there? But I thought Miami might have been able to offer a little bit more of a a prominent role for him. It is time to belly flop into this mailbag. We will begin with Ian42 asking, understanding, based on the way the Blazers played in Summer League, watching the defense switch into pressure zone off misses, which is weird to begin with, but a high pressure and recover system, what are the chances that Damian Lillard returns to his 2018 form after the surgery last season and actually plays good defense and the Blazers are actually better on that end of the floor next season? Uh, The Look, the press off misses was interesting, uh, I had to go back and watch some of it because I don't think I saw enough sub- summer league to pick up on that. Um, I am curious whether it's going to translate with the personnel that they currently have on the roster. Does it, uh, and I'm talking specifically off of misses here. Um, if they're going to send two or three guys, um, you know, two after the ball have one man, the passing lanes in the backcourt, does that eventually leave Yusuf Nurkic up to, to dry in any situations? Uh, I do not know. Are you going to trust doing that when Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons are both on the court? at the same time can you trust them to just make those reads i think when you're changing it up or knowing off of which which misses you're going to do it or which situation specifically it's going to take a lot of defensive iq 
do they have that in, you know, the Damian Lillard and Free Simons backcourt, which would theoretically play a fairly substantial part in executing that? I do not know. Overall, though, I like the defensive talent on this roster. And I did go back and look. Uh, the Blazers have had a top 10 defense twice since Dame entered the league. In 2014, 2015, they were 10th in points allowed per possession per cleaning the glass. And then again in 2017, 2018, they were seventh. Uh, during the 2014, 2015 season, they had that was the year they had Nick Batum, Wes Matthews. I believe that was the season he tore his ACL towards the end. They also had uh, Robin Lopez there. 2017, 2018, they had rangy defenders like Harkless, Aminu, Turner, Pat Connaughton was on that team as well. Uh, I don't want to say this year's team is sort of a facsimile of that 2017-2018 team because it's not, but they have some similarly valuable, versatile, um, can defend in pressure situations players on the perimeter. Josh Hart, Jeremy Grant, Gary Payton II, a fantastic pickup. Let's not forget about the flyer they've taken on Justice Winslow. Can Nas Little stay healthy? He'll be huge for them there. And then if anyone didn't watch Keon Johnson towards the end of last season, they should go back and do that a little bit physical tools that are just off the charts. Uh, this is a team that I feel like could maybe force a lot more turnovers than meets the eye. And not just because if they're going to run a defense that is prided upon this aggressive pressure, I think they have the talent on the perimeter in certain lineups to make that work. It or just be really good. Do they have enough to cover up for Dame Lillard and Anthony Simons? I don't know how much better we can ex expect Dame to defend at this point in his career uh, to rewind the clock. I guess Ian saying that 2017, 2018 was Dame's best defensive season. I don't really know that offhand, um, but I I could, I, I see a path. First of all, there's almost nowhere to go, but up for the Blazers this season. But when you're looking at the half court specifically, Nurkic is more than capable of holding his own there. And so if you're going to surround him and Dame in general, and you're, you're going to stagger Anthony Simons to some degree, and you have these options like Josh Hart, Jeremy Grant, Gary Payton, the second, Justice Winslow, even Nas Little and Keon Johnson to, to lesser extents there. I definitely think that you're going to be able to, to help your defense a ton. Um, I, I think some questions though need to be asked here. And one is when Shane Sharp is healthy, how many minutes is he getting? Because a rookie on defense, you're probably going to have to um, deal with a lot of learning mistakes, a steep learning curve there. And then the secondary big man rotation, just the big man rotation in general, you don't look at it and say, Oh, this is a great uh, setup of defensive bigs. I think Drew Eubanks is underrated. And I was, I didn't like the Spurs got rid of him. I thought the Raptors should have kept him when they acquired him uh, in that from, I think it was the Spurs that they got him from the top, whatever. But I like Drew Eubanks. Uh, Trenton Watford's had some good moments and he played a ton of center last year. And then you have Nurkic. That's a little bit uninspiring. Still, I think in the aggregate, you have the personnel. I don't know you you can have a top 10 defense, but I think the Blazers can get to league average or better. Uh, so yes, I, I do expect them to, to be a lot better on the defensive end this season. If I had to guess, let's set the, are they going to be better or worse than let's say 15th in defensive efficiency. I know it's a cop out. That's a really tough line for me to take. I might just lean worse because of the talent that's in the Western conference, but I think they'll be closer to league average, if not better. So than not Azrael PC underscore PC asks, what are the odds that the Pacers now become a third team in the Lakers Brooklyn deal to get Russ out of uh, LA and Irving to LA? I listened to your previous pod and I'm still interested in knowing what the framework for uh Lakers nets Pacers three team deal would be for this mailbag. So it feels like and unless Brooklyn warms up to sort of a full on rebuild as part of any Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant trade, and these are all linked. I don't think they'll move Kyrie Irving unless they move Kevin Durant. And so under in this scenario, Kevin Durant is leaving. Are you still prioritizing remaining competitive now because you've mortgaged so much of your future to Houston as part of that James Harden deal? Uh, if you have, uh, you're going to be, you're going to want third and fourth teams to help make any trade with the Lakers work. And you're sort of shoehorned into a deal with the Lakers right now because they seem like they're the only team interested in Kyrie. I mentioned on the last podcast, maybe we could see Dallas sneak in there, but so, so you're operating under that circumstance. If you don't care about that and you're just interested in getting picks, then if I'm Brooklyn, you take on Russ Westbrook, get 27 and 29 first from the Lakers, assuming they're offering it, which they should be. Uh, and you wave Russ or buy him out and just go from there. 
Uh, Indy is intriguing because the Nets really want to remain competitive, it seems. And Indy and the Spurs have a ton of cap space. And I think you could throw the Jazz in as a team just because they are going towards that full tilt rebuild. Um, they would be willing to acquire the one year of Russ if it meant getting draft equity. So looking at what are the odds, let's say Kyrie's going to the Lakers. What are the odds that Russ ends up with the Pacers as part of a three-team deal involving the Nets and the Lakers as well? I might peg it at better than 25% at this juncture. And if we're if we're guaranteeing it's going to be a three-team deal, there are really only three teams where I, I feel like it could probably work. And I don't know if it'd be too difficult to fold Utah into this as part of like a separate, like is the Donovan Mitchell trade a part of that as well? I think Indy, if we're just saying that Russ is going to a third team in this deal, and I've essentially just narrowed it down to the Spurs, the Pacers, or the Jazz, I give Indy the largest share, um, percentage share of that likely. Like it's not split evenly, 33%, 33.3, 33.3, 33.3. Let's say if we're operating under that assumption, I'd say... 45 to 50% chance. If again, that's the scenario, if not better, I'm going to move it up 50, 55 to 60% chance that it would be the Pacers that go that route. Maybe I'm sort of underselling how conservative the Pacers typically are, but Hey, they're, they're living on the wild side. They gave out an offer sheet to Deandre Ayton, even though it wasn't a very inventive one, it was designed to get matched essentially. Uh, I, I think they're, they're just among, they are in that rebuild. And I've, some people in our YouTube comments wanted them to keep Russ, uh, I think he would drive Rick Carlisle uh, mad. And I don't want to see him just take touches away from uh, Benedict Matherin, Tyrese Halliburton, Chris Duarte at this point. Now, the structure of a three-team deal, what makes the Patriots so interesting, they have over $30 million in cap space or can maintain more than $30 million in cap space. So they can effectively, you know, I've seen all the scenarios where it's, oh, Miles Turner and Buddy Heald are going out. I, I guess if you're getting both the Lakers picks in 27 and 29, sure, if you're only getting one, my question would be, why are you giving up both of those players? Unless you really view Buddy Heald as this net negative when he has two years and more than 40 million left on his deal. I don't think he's that supremely of a net negative. And so the framework I came up with is the Lakers would get Kyrie. The Nets would get Buddy Heald and the 2029 Lakers first. Indy would get Russ and the 2027 Lakers first. Now, Brooklyn and Indy can swap first there. I think Brooklyn should get the first that is deemed more favorable. I'm just zooming as far out as possible and thinking 2029 would be more favorable. If 2029 is going to be protected, um, if you just think that the Lakers are more likely to bottom out earlier on uh, and then pick up the pieces really quickly, then have 2027 go to Brooklyn. But I'd have Brooklyn and Indy each getting a first-round pick. I think if you want to fold Miles Turner into this deal because you're worried about carrying more money on your books and you kind of want to go, it wouldn't be dollar for dollar, but you would only be taking on an extra like 7 million bucks with Russell Westbrook. If you traded uh, both Turner and, and buddy healed, I get it. If you want to go that route and you're in knee, are you getting both first round picks here? Uh, you could like almost there, there's a, there's a scenario in which the Lakers straight up could end up with Kyrie Irving and miles Turner um, because they would be able to send out a town Horton Tucker in this deal. So they can take back that much money. Um, I just don't, unless you're getting both Lakers picks, which I would think it's very, it would be borderline impossible to do here uh, because what are the nets getting for Kyrie Irving? So it's not borderline impossible. I just don't think they, they would give up. They would punt on all the Lakers picks just, so they don't have to take on the one year of Russ. I don't really buy into that. So that was my framework there. And then I know all of a sudden the nets have buddy healed and Joe Harris and Seth Curry. Look, and plus, let's not forget Patty Mills. If you just have Ben Simmons and a shit ton of shooting, there are worse ways to go about your business. Uh, again, that's only if you don't want to take on Russ. I would say take the picks that the Lakers are giving and be willing to, to take back Russ. Now, you could work it so, well, are the Pacers keeping Turner and, uh, or keep, excuse me, keeping Heald and then sending Turner to Brooklyn? I just, I think Turner has more value than Heald still, even in going into the finals year of his contract. And the Nets, you know, they just paid Nick Claxton. Granted, he's very cheap. Do you want Turner, who is going to be a free agent next season? I guess if you're trying to compete immediately, you have him for this year. You think about resigning him in free agency during the 2023 offseason. Sure. Uh, I just, if I'm Indy and I'm taking back Russ and I'm giving up an expiring contract, I don't know if the one first round pick does it enough for me. Um, so, and you're also obliterating basically all of your cap space in that model because Buddy Heald makes more than, uh, than Miles Turner. So 
you know, and there's also other ways to work this where they can send out Daniel Tice as well as part of this deal. Like, do you send Daniel Tice back to the Lakers, force them to take back something else? They have the ability to take back a ton more money. So even just doing Buddy Heald straight up would obliterate most of your cap flexibility that's remaining. Maybe they want to save some leading into the trade deadline, but they have other salaries that they could fold into this deal. I think they probably value TJ McConnell, even coming back from injury. I don't love that contract right now, but it is only two fully guaranteed years and then basically a half guarantee uh, on that third year. But you could put him or Tice into this deal. You could put both of them into this deal very easily, actually, sending them to, to Brooklyn or sending them to LA. I would almost argue that if you're indie, you should be rooting for maybe the Kyrie scenario to come off the table in Brooklyn. I said that I would give up Heald and Turner for both those Lakers first round picks. Uh, I'd maybe be like a little bit leery of doing it. And hey, look, maybe the Lakers just don't even want Heald because they want all expiring contracts coming off their books. I think that'd be fucking stupid. But if they're willing to, you know, you get to keep Heald still, again, if you don't view him as an asset, I understand why you wouldn't want to just give up Turner and then a, a McConnell or a Tice. So, and I really don't know what McConnell's value is. There's He's a really pesky defender in your face and can be an okay game manager. Um, a, fairly dangerous sometimes when he gets close enough to the basket, but just not, doesn't help you stretch the floor. Don't like him playing off the ball alongside other ball handlers. So a lot of moving parts there, but I went through the setup of what I think a three good three-team framework would be. If I'm the Pacers, I'm trying to broker something straight up. Uh, and I would see if I could get both those Lakers first for Buddy Heald and, and Miles Turner. Darkwing Duck asks, who's handling aging in the NBA less gracefully, Russell Westbrook or Allen Iverson? My God. Russ, if he gets traded again, as uh, Johan Buha noted at the Athletic, will have played for more teams over this, you know, age 31 to 34 span of his career than Allen Iverson did. Uh, my answer to this question, I have it written in my notes, is, geez, I don't fucking know after really thinking about it. Russ has actually been more efficient from his age 31 to 33 seasons than Allen Iverson was uh, shot better on two pointers. Their sister turnover ratio was virtually the same. I think they were both probably equally as stubborn when it came to changing their game. The difference to me is Westbrook is healthier than Iverson was at that point in his career. And I healthier in the sense, like he is playing more prominent roles. He's appeared in more games during this stretch of his career for whatever reason it is. I, I think that emboldens him to think he's, I think that he thinks, how about that for phrasing? I do believe that maybe that emboldens him a little bit more than Allen Iverson, but I, man, Allen Iverson was one of the most confident players in the NBA of all time. And if anything, I'm just going to answer with Westbrook tentatively because we're living in the age of social media and Iverson definitely didn't have that when you're talking about, you know, him in Detroit and, and him in Memphis, even him in Denver. Um, and it also felt like, but on the flip side, I do feel like Russ has at least tried to adjust within very strict confines. And I had this discussion with someone on Twitter who said um, that I wasn't giving Westbrook enough blame for the Lakers dilemma, just because we saw him adjust a little bit in Houston with Harden and then somewhat in Washington alongside Bradley Beal during the second half of the year. He was still a very ball dominant player in those settings. And we never saw him revert into an off-ball player, uh, be willing to play top-tier defense or even smart defense if, if his offensive role, role was dwindling. And I don't even think we could say he didn't do that because we've never actually seen an attempt at that. We've never seen a team be able to get Russ moving off the ball and use him as a screener a bunch. ESPN put up a stat that Russ was very inefficient when he was coming off um, when he was being used as the screener last year, but he only fit, set 57 ball screens. That was also per second, second spectrum. That's not high enough volume to sort of draw any drastic conclusions. So maybe there's been more of an effort there and recency bias is probably kicking in. Like I am so, I, I was young enough to where I probably didn't understand what was happening in real time with Allen Iverson back then. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I still feel like AI had better offensive highs than Westbrook is having right now, but maybe the, the Lakers season is just tattooed into memory at the moment because he had a, a wild hot stretch to close his time in Washington and the same with Houston. What I will say is it did feel like teams adapted to Russ more than we saw with AI Houston 
legitimately just traded its starting center in Clint Capella along with a first round pick to go all into small ball and maximize the shooting around Russ model. We saw the Wizards give Russ adequate control over the offense um, when he was healthier with them as well. The Lakers, they didn't kowtow to Russ's functional whims as much, but they also didn't like not do that. They didn't try and force him into the role that um, they needed or wanted from him. Uh, and maybe that there was pushback. There, well, we know there was pushback from him behind the scenes based off his exit interview, uh, his own exit interview. Uh, and how do you frequently bench 40 plus million dollars in salary? It's almost impossible. I don't have a great answer to this question. I'm going to say Russ just because we're living in the age of social media where everything is magnified times a thousand. And you're also in a situation where um, when you were, when you saw AI in Denver, it almost felt like they brought him in to be their second best player. Um, and they just seemed like he was a little bit more open to the possibilities uh, of Detroit and Memphis, unless I'm misremembering. So I'm going Russ. It's really close. And that's probably why uh, so many comparisons are being drawn between the two. Christopher asks, will you offer an official apology to the Kings if they somehow manage to make the Western Conference or NBA Finals? I don't really know what I have to apologize for. I came on the podcast and said people are going to slam the Kings no matter what decision they made on draft night. I bet I've not that I've come around on Keegan Murray. I understand the Keegan Murray draft pick. I just did a YouTube segment uh, and it was also a podcast segment where I talked about the value of Keegan Murray, how good he looked in summer league, how perfect he might be for this team. And we're actually going to have uh, a little Keegan Murray riff in, in just a second. But I, I don't know. I begged the Sacramento Kings to choose a direction, which I don't a concrete direction. I don't think they've done that to be honest. Um, this, a bonus trade was sort of like an all in play that got you nowhere, in my opinion. Let's see how this season plays out. I'm not, and I don't think, unless they make other moves that I don't, on the trademark that I don't see coming, I'm not picking them to make the playoffs this year. I'm not picking them to make the play-in either, I don't think. And so if they, if they exceed those expectations of mine, then yes, I will offer an apology to the Kings if they make the playoffs outright. How about that? If they are one of the top six teams in the West, I owe a big apology uh, if they make it into the plan and then out of the plan, then I will also apologize. But I wanted them to angle for something that was higher than playing territory, either by starting anew or like, or even just resetting around Fox and Halliburton or go all in, in a clarifying way that made me think, okay, they have a realistic shot at being a top six team next year. I don't view them as having a realistic shot at being top six again, failing any major complications with other teams or a big time move from the Kings to close out this offseason? Demos Quoll asks, What's the ceiling for the top five rookies and what's their floor? Can Keegan Murray be compared to Tatum or is it just too soon? I want to hear your most blasphemous comparisons. Uh, Demos, you're going to get me into trouble with this. I respect it. I'm going to answer the questions anyway. I'm taking this quite literally. I am going the, uh, at least when it comes to best case scenario for the top five picks. I'm going to go the absolutely bonkers route and as high end as I can possibly think. I want it to be like within reason. And when I did best case, I decided to, I don't like assuming that there are these like direct comparisons. So I combined players uh, for the most part when, when looking at these best and worst case scenarios, uh, some of these worst case scenarios, I think because I'm so high on all five of the, uh, top five rookies at this point, they're probably not spicy enough, but I tried to go spicy as hell uh, in the best case scenario. So let's start with Paolo Bancaro, who I'm in love with. I I see a lot of the Blake Griffin comps. I see Pistons Blake Griffin though, where he wasn't playing above the rim as much and he had a lot more of an off the dribble game facilitation game. So Paolo Bancaro, prime Pistons Blake Griffin, which I guess existed for a year and a half. And then Aaron Gordon on defense. I thought it was a fair comparison. Like he, there were some moments one-on-one, -on -one, even switching in summer league where I didn't understand why people were so concerned with him guarding at this level. We'll see how it pans out. My worst case scenario for him was actually a lot of people's present NBA comps for him. I think the worst case is just Julius Randle where he's all over the place, up and down, inefficient jumper, still kind of a useful player, but he can't really be used as a complimentary player that much or he fancies himself more than that. That's my worst case for Paolo, which I think speaks to how high I am. On, on Paolo. Chet Holmgren. My best is, and I, these are in my notes, what if Nick Batum, Andre Karolinko, and Marcus Camby were the same player? Which is what? I mean, you have a little bit of off-the-dribble juice, 
faith in the net. It's not necessarily explosive, but there is quickness there with Andre Karolinko. There's the methodical, solid passing with Karolinko and Batum. Uh, the defense, the rebounding, the shot blocking of a Marcus Camby, the floor running of a Marcus Camby. I'm not, I didn't want to gravitate. I tried to steer clear of ones that I've seen too often or that I thought were borderline cliches. Uh, so I'm not going to go with like the Kevin Durant meets Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, maybe there needs to be like a little bit of the Carl Anthony Towns sprinkled into this three player combo, but a Nick Batum, Andre Karolinko, Marcus Camby hybrid, which some people might take as an insult, insult because none of those players are superstars, but together, uh, you're talking about three players who, at their peaks, were kind of at that level. They're going to be megastars, for sure. Uh, someone on Reddit, by the way, I saw said, Gen Z Ralph Sampson, and I laughed and can't get it out of my head. Worst case, I think it's fair when people say Bulbul is what they see. I think it's more like Tayshawn Prince. And I know he was a great defender. I think that Holmgren, even if it proves that he's not strong enough or he can get thrown around will still be a good wing defender or disruptor and that you can count on him to make simple plays on offense, whether it's an open space, just passing out or stroking threes off the catch. Maybe Tayshaun Prince is like, I'm not trying to insult Tayshaun Prince is my point. Let's say Tayshaun Prince on offense. Then for worst case scenario, a bowl bowl would be straight out his worst case scenario. Jabari Smith jr. Who I am all in on his defense now that I think is just far outstripped his offensive potential. And I don't think that was made enough of leading into the draft based off what I read and uh, watched. But my best case for him is Chris Middleton and Kevin Garnett merge DNA makeups. That is what I have written down. Uh, there's like that positionlessness of what that player would be in Chris Middleton and KG on defense that I really respect. But you also have the where Middleton's not too disruptive or anarchic on defense. KG brings that controlled chaos. And that disruption. Uh, and then I can just see it on offense where, yeah, are you going to have him in the post like a KG working from the working from the high post, working from the elbows, um, spotting up off the catch, running some high screen and pops? Uh, I could see that with him, but I could also see him doing like real efficient off the dribble jump shooting like a Chris Middleton living in the mid range, doing some like really tough wingy fadeaways. And then, of course, still hitting enough of his threes, running these secondary pick and rolls. Uh, he's like, he's definitely bigger than Middleton, which is why the KG comp ring so true. I just think his offensive game could technically be more expansive. I'm not saying as dominant, but it could be more expansive as KG's where he started out as like having like as a wing, but without wing responsibilities because he played so much of the three early on in his career. I can see Jabari Smith being in one of the big men spots, but he has these wing responsibilities. My worst case is just Noah Vonley because I could kind of see him being like someone who just never leaves a dent on the game. If his shot selection doesn't improve, if his shot creation or shot making off of those creative situations doesn't get a lot better. Uh, and then also maybe he's just a flop on defense or he's only intermittently good. And it proves that maybe the NBA game is too fast, like to process for him on defense. Uh, this is someone that I feel like, I know a lot of people said that he might have the highest floor of the bunch, like of the top three. I kind of feel like he might have the, the lowest floor now. I, I could be wrong there, but the best case scenario should at least make Rockets fans excited. Please just don't be mad at me. Keegan Murray, I don't see the Jason Tatum comps. I just don't think he's, we're ever going to see him have the uh, the variable on-ball skills of a Jason Tatum. And I know even then it was hard to imagine Jason Tatum having those skills when you look at his rookie year and how he was used. I just don't see the same from Keegan Murray. I look at him more as this like really high-end shot relocator who's going to knock down looks, and maybe there's some self-creation there, but it's, it's very basic, sometimes forceful, um, or maybe it's just a matter of him shooting and rising over the top of players. So my best case for him is Harrison Barnes on defense and then like a Danilo Gallinari on offense. I thought about going Michael Porter Jr. I saw a lot of people compare him to that. I just don't know. I get it because like Michael Porter Jr. wasn't this detonative player, uh, even pre-back injuries, but he doesn't even have the same size as MPJ to rise up and fire over people. I could see the definitely like the relocation and uh, the cutting. I, I could see that translating, but Gallo, there's more of like this girthy self-creation too, where it can almost happen in slow motion. It's a little bit physical. It doesn't always look pretty, but it works and it gets you to the free throw line. So Gallo on offense, Harrison Barnes on defense, maybe a little bit when we're looking at shot relocation, Michael Porter Jr. on offense. My worst case Scenario, I think, is Marvin Williams, just in general. But he was he was a rock-solid defender. So let's say Gallo on defense and Mark Williams on, on offense uh, for Keegan Murray there. 
he of the four feels like he could technically have the the highest floor so far. Jaden Ivy, best case is I have this written down and it feels kind of cheap, but after watching what little we saw of him in summer league, I get the comps that I saw. So I have year three, John Morant fucks with 2017, 2018, Victor Oladipo. I think there's definitely concern about, Oh, could he be as good of a passer as Morant? I think the decision-making after he leaves his feet is there. We saw him throw some nifty passes and then just a couple of the, even dating back to his time in school. And then uh, some of the plays in, in summer league, there might be more like of a perimeter threat, a more, like not just John Morant, oh, finally making defenses pay for going under screens. I'm talking off the dribble three, um, not just a floater game, but like a, a fire off on a whim mid-range game. And that's where Oladipo sort of comes in. And then there's that all defense level. I'm just kind of baking in his physical tools there. If you wanted to go with someone more like a Gilbert Arenas or Baron Davis, uh, prime one of those rather than a John Morant, I would get it. I, I think those... Probably Gilbert Arenas is more apt. Just that's someone who's not appreciably worse as a passer, but someone who's not going to be known for his playmaking first and foremost, uh, like John Morant can be, where it feels like his scoring and playmaking are all almost on equal levels. But if we're just trying to envision the best, best, best case scenario uh, for Jaden Ivey, it's John Morant fucks with all NBA Victor Oladipo. That's sticking to it. His floor, worst case scenario, feels like a Dennis Schroeder. This should, it should be someone who's always very solid on on the offensive end, but always leaves you wanting more on defense. And then you can't always count on him on the offensive end. Maybe that's too high, a worst case scenario, but we're talking about Dennis Schroeder still under the age of 30. One of the final free agents remaining at this point, he went from having a, a very lucrative, was it 80, $90 million extension on the table from the Lakers last season uh, to playing out the mid level this past on the mini mid level this past season to being flipped uh, by the Celtics at, the trade deadline to now he's currently doesn't have an, an NBA team. Uh, let me know what you think about that in the comments, the YouTube comments or get at me on Twitter. So since the podcast or the discord uh, that this was a tough exercise, I spent way too much time on it. So I hope that at least shows and it came from a good place. Even if uh, I'm completely wrong, cosmic raccoon asked question from a Rockets fan. I think our coach, Paul Silas is, uh, <laughs> I think our coach, Steven Silas is one of the worst coaches in the NBA as someone outside of Rockets fandom. Do you have thoughts on Silas as a coach? Personally, I'm really looking forward to him being released and the org moving on, hopefully during the season. I did ask Cosmic Raccoon a follow-up question of what specifically he was talking about. Um, and he went into, um, I'll, I'll talk, he gave me, they gave me, excuse me, a very extensive answer that was great. The highlights included, uh, he consistently prioritized giving minutes and touches to vets, even though the younger players behind those vets are performing better. Um, and he also can give, a, uh, they can also give a lot of examples from the last two years of that and that he never holds the vets accountable for a lack of effort, selfish player, bad mistakes. And there doesn't seem to be a tangible style on offense that I will say. And he brings up the usage of Christian Wood and Shangoon, where they had Shangoon spotting up for wood uh, rather than the other way around because Shangoon is not as good of a shooter and is a, a lot better of a passer. My whole thing is I don't know that the Rockets were talented enough or have enough options to judge Silas in that manner. I think we've definitely, it, yes. And so the, the notes that I have here is I, I I think that it took too long for them to explore Josh Christopher. Uh, I don't know how much of an organizational decision versus uh, Silas decision that it was to not use Usman Garuba ever, but that was a little bit disappointing. I just don't know what you, you know, the Rockets tried to take options away from him by benching John Wall. Now they've traded Christian Wood. So maybe there's an element of concern there for themselves. Uh, are they in a rush to trade Wood if they don't have one of the top three picks and know they're going to get another front court player? I honestly have no idea. I think he deserves more of a grace period this season. And I want to see, do they have an offensive identity? Uh, I appreciate that they continue to focus on getting to the rim and three point frequency. I also, you have to question how much of that is the front office edict from Raphael Stone and others who were under Daryl Morey. Uh, this is a team that I know Shangoon can slow things down, but you have Jalen Green, you have Kevin Porter Jr., even Josh Christopher, having Jason Tate, having Kenyon Martin Jr. Let's see them run. They didn't push the ball enough last season at, off of misses. I looked this up and was just surprised that even though I thought they didn't get out in transition enough, they were dead last in transition frequency. That doesn't always translate to efficient offense, but it is a way to sort of paper over a lack of not offensive talent, but offensive direction in the floor form of a floor general. And without John wall last season, 
there was just never a floor general. You had um, KPJ masquerading in that role. You did have J Josh Christopher. They really milked Jalen Green the second half of the season. That was great. They probably leaned too much on Dennis Schroeder once he came over from the trade deadline. That's fair. Did they move Daniel Tice at the trade deadline? Not just because that contract was weird in the first place, but to take him away from Steven Silas. His playing time had decreased, though, to that point. My, my point here is I need to see the Rockets have a coherent season first before I judge Steven Silas. And I think now they have enough options and just infrastructure on paper to where, okay, we can judge him. Is he the right guy for the rebuild? Are you giving him a half season, a full season, whatever? Uh, are we going to see him still cater to vets? Like how many minutes is Eric Gordon getting if he's still on the team next season? Does he all of a sudden fall in love with David Nawaba? Uh, is Usman Garuba still not getting burned here? We know that Jalen Green and Jabari Smith Jr. are going to get adequate adequate run. But how are you going to use Jabari Smith Jr. and Alperin Shangun together? That's something we need to watch. You, you're still, at this point, you're going to want Jabari Smith being the one that plays off of Shangun. That's still going to be the, um, that should be the clear mandate there or the, or the clear concept. Is that going to work? I also want to know, look, Terry Eason, is he going to get playing time? And more to the point, I'm not a believer in KPJ. I think he can be a really good, valuable NBA player. I don't view him as someone who can have the ball in his hands and is tasked with setting up the rest of his teammates and running the offense. I saw it towards the end a little bit of 2021. I didn't see it a ton last year. And I'm looking at, you look at the roster now, excuse me, and even just having, by virtue of having Ty Ty Washington, like I want to see him get a chance to really run this team. So that that's going to matter. And so how much does he use him? And does he give him a chance to captain the offense along with Jalen Green? Even Jabari Smith Jr. Are you putting him in lineups where he's going to be forced to create? I want to see a lot of experimentation with the kids, more creative lineups for sure than we saw last season. Um, you know, rack, uh, like the Rockets fans are going to know more. Cosmic Raccoon specifically is going to know more about the, uh, the nuts and bolts of their night to night rotation than I ever could when I'm catching games of the Rockets at a time. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that you're disappointed in the lack of discernible identity for this team, especially on the offensive end. That being said, it was a combination these past two seasons, not only going off the rails, but of exploration that didn't really have, I think, enough viable options to explore, is my point. Um, and there are mistakes, and the the Wood Shangun one specifically is great. But now I think they have enough of the youngsters in here to where even if you don't view Ty Ty Washington as the solution as a potential floor general, like are we at least getting weird with the lineups at this point, or is this no? He's still in love with and look who's who's going to remain on the books for the Rockets leading in the season. I don't know, but are we going to see you know too much of Trey Burke all of a sudden, or like I said, David Nwaba? Does Boban get minutes if he's still on the roster? Uh, I I don't want to see that personally. And I actually think Sterling Brown could still be really good in this league. Uh, I want to see, you know, go point guardless at this point. Give me Jabari Smith Jr. with Jay Sean Tate, Jalen Green, KJ Martin, and then someone else who's not a big. Like, let's get weird. Uh, I do think, though, to some extent, when you have a veteran like Eric Gordon, you're almost obligated to try and play him so you can continue to prop up his trade value. But you are in a situation where it's the front office. If you think this is the way Silas is going to coach, you're not going to get rid of him. You kind of have to do what the Knicks just did with Tibbs, and they got rid of Taj Gibson. And uh, can you get rid of Eric Gordon now, move him, so that Silas doesn't have the option of playing him, and it's more trial by fire for some of the youngsters. But I do think this is a season where it's fair to pass more wholesale judgments on the Rockets' direction overall, which I deem pretty promising when you look at their personnel. Uh, and then Steven Silas specifically. That was a great question and something now that I hadn't considered, but I'm going to be paying attention to even more during the regular season. So thank you, Cosmic Raccoon. JT Alexander. I really found Adam Silver speaking about G League players versus draft guys in one of the recent pods uh, interesting. Oh, Adam S. I, re I really found Adam Spinella speaking about G League players versus draft guys on one of his recent pods interesting. Are there any guys currently in the G League you can see playing a role for someone in the NBA a la Gary Payton II? So I tried to steer clear of the names that have been regurgitated to this point, and I, I came up with three. One of them actually might be considered an obvious one. He he won G League Rookie of the Year. Uh, Mac McClung, smaller, but he's got shifty footwork, handle, nice touch, played for the dubs in Summer League, hit some pretty uh, nice, like I don't want to call them circus shots, but they were just buttery, difficult shots. 
would any team give him a shot? He's not expected to make the Dubs roster. I think the Pacers could be fun. Just I, I feel like they need another. Not, doesn't have to be a smaller ball handler, but like someone who profiles maybe as a a lead guard type, even if if it's a super reserve. Uh, and you want that guard to score more than TJ McConnell. I don't know if McClung is the a good enough passer to f- fulfill that role, but he is someone I would keep. You know, if you can have nice touch, especially off the dribble, get in the lane, be physical, finish through contact there, even further away from the basket. does feel like he bails out from the rim a little bit too much based off what I watched from him. Another guy played for the Pistons in summer league. He is currently on a two-way. Braxton Key is the jumper there. Uh, because he was pretty disruptive like on, on the defensive end. He can defend some really bigger players, man passing lanes, uh, finish some like tough angled layups or, or not even layups, but just difficult shots around the rim. I would love to see a team that's wing decimated or doesn't have a pure three on the roster, like a Utah, a San Antonio, or a mini to get a hold of him. And then finally... Familiar name around these parts. And it might be a little bit more apropos to Gary Payton II, except that he was. uh, He is a former first-round pick, but he is 27. Justin Jackson uh, played last year with the Texas Legends. He was with the Boston Celtics in summer league. Six foot eight, shot 45.7% on threes in the G League last year. He, in summer league specifically, looked a lot more comfortable working with the ball. Like, you could almost trust him to come around screens, grab the ball, and then make quick reads in space. Is he continuing to dribble uh, an attack, or is he just throwing these really quick pocket passes? I thought, oddly enough, that Sacramento would be a good fit for him because they still kind of need wings there. Is there too many bad memories? He started his career with the Kings. The Lakers could really use to give him a shot. Are they more? Are they going to be willing to give someone who's just older, has some NBA experience, some run alongside LeBron and, and AD and however else they're going to flesh out their, their best units? I actually really wouldn't mind that fit. That would be a very creative um, flyer by the Lakers to me. The Pacers are there. Cleveland was another team I thought of, if you really trust in his three ball, and then someone who I still think could be really good on defense, especially away from the ball there. And then Utah, because they're wing decimated. I hope that's the type of answer you were looking for, JT, and I hope that I caught you off guard with some of the names. Uh, like I said, the Justin Jackson reclamation project would be would be pretty fun to see specifically. And then after that, if I had to rank these three guys, I think I have Jackson followed by Braxton Key, then then Mac McClung. Actually, let's get to this. Let's get to this one first because from Glad, Glad, you always have a way of asking questions that make me spend like at least thirty to forty five minutes thinking about them. So thank you for that. But also, I'm kind of angry with you for consuming so much of my time. Just kidding there. Who do you think are the top 10 defenders of all time? And where does Gobert stack up all time in that? Also, is Tim Duncan low-key number one, or is that spot reserved for Hakeem? So I'm not going to give you definitive ranking because it was too hard. I do have 10 players um, and then some toughest cuts and then current players that I think could still crack that. Uh, I think if you want to look specifically at... I'll answer the, the last two questions first. I have Gobert in my top 10 already. This guy has been a defensive system unto himself for a half decade, guaranteeing yourself a top 10, guaranteeing his team a top 10 defense. And it looks like his prime is going to wind up stretching uh, longer than Dwight Howard's, or at least the fact that he's going to be more plug and play, I think ends up helping him compared to um, the longevity that Dwight Howard has now displayed in the uh, the league, but it was also sort of cut short. Like he's been around, but like the, the longevity is sort of tainted a little bit. So I have Gobert in my top 10, just one of the most dominant rim protections I've ever, I've ever seen. And I would also say, you know, the Dwight Howards, the DeAndre Jordans, like those kind of bigs from his era, even Clint Capella, they never held up as well in space as he did. Is Tim Duncan number one? I think he could be number one. I'd probably put Bill Russell there. Um, I would have, there's Hakeem and David Robinson. I think all four of those guys have a case to maybe be number one. I think I'm so in love with Tim Duncan. He could be my number one, but Bill Russell was maybe dominant in ways, both numerical and functional anecdotal that perhaps Tim Duncan was never like that loud in your face player. His longevity on defense too was, was, was incredible, but my, my players that I have in the top 10 in no order, they're just listed this way. Tim Duncan, Bill Russell, David Robinson, Hakeem Olajuwon, Scotty Pippen, Kevin Garnett, Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green, Ben Wallace, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Filling out, uh, full disclosure, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was my last inclusion here. Came down between both him and Ben Wallace were sort of 
uh, the ones that I was debating to cut. And my toughest cuts were, and I think I might diverge on one of these, Gary Payton. I don't think many people have him this high. Dikembe Mutombo and Dennis Rodman. And active players who I think have a chance to get into the top 10 all time. Kawhi, if he just stays healthy, he might already be there for some. And then Giannis Antetokounmpo, of course. I don't know if you can put him there just yet, but it certainly feels like he might be tracking in, uh, in that direction. Mile High Hoops asks, who are your dark horses for all the major awards next season? This is interesting. Um, the way I set it up was I did go look at betting odds, and I said that anyone I picked couldn't be laying. I didn't want to set just a specific payout. They couldn't be laying one of the 10 best odds. I wanted people who were outside of that. So let's start with coach of the year. I think Willie Green with the Pelicans. I'm not sure if he's dark horse enough, but with Zion coming back, he he was my he was my first pick. That was the one I gravitated towards. With Zion coming back, uh, the progress the Pelicans showed on defense last year after their slow start, specifically in transition, even the fight they put up against Phoenix in um, to start the playoffs, I think this is a team that could be a top four squad in the West if they get enough games out of Zion Williamson. I'm not even saying 75 to 80, but like 60 plus. I also considered uh, Mark Dagnall with the Thunder. Uh, and for anyone who cares, Willie Green is 16 to one right now to win coach of the year. I have Mark Dagnall, Jamal Mosley. They are both a hundred to one to win coach of the year. And then Rick Carlisle is 80 to one to win coach of the year at the moment. I think um, the most interesting coach there is probably Rick Carlisle. Just he might have, oh, I don't know, Dagnall with Oklahoma city. They can catch people off guard. And even Mosley, like now you have, Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter Jr., Jalen Suggs, Franz Wagner. There's like a real base for a team at that point. Um, I, I don't want to have to pick between those three. Those are the four I immediately thought of. If Willie Green is too high end, he would be my pick. If you consider Willie Green too high end, I'm going to go with Mark Dagnall of the Oklahoma City Thunder. I might just be too high on them with Shea Gilders Alexander, Lou Dort, Kenridge Williams coming back, and then Chet Holmgren, of course. Next up will be Rookie of the year. Most interesting ones to me, the single most interesting one to me actually is Ty Ty Washington of the rocket. I just think he can wind up getting more minutes immediately plays bigger than he actually is. They still don't have to me, their point guard of the future in Houston. And if you give him real run, I could see him putting up the numbers necessary to be in the discussion. Marjan Bochamp plus 5,000 stood out as well. I don't know if he gets minutes with Milwaukee, but they don't have a ton of wings and the Chris Middleton injury now throws a wrench into the plans. Maybe he sort of surprises everyone. We don't typically see a player from a team that could enter the discussion. I also have Bryce McGowan's from Charlotte at uh, plus 10,000. I don't know if they're going to play him, but that dude can score in all sorts of ways. And I was incredibly intrigued by him coming into the draft. And then I, I rounded out Jake LaRavia with Memphis at plus 6,000. I'm assuming they're going to plan on giving run to him. In addition to Zaire Williams, just looking at their, uh, you know, and David Roddy as well, just sort of looking at them letting Kyle Anderson go. You also have the Jaron Jackson Jr. injury to start the year. Those are the names that popped up to me. I wouldn't make any of them my first pick. Ty Ty Washington, though, would be the player uh, from that group I'd single out most. Dark Horse to win sixth man of the year. I have Bones Highland with the Denver Nuggets, who just to just so we're clear, was not one of the top 10 odds layers. He's at plus 3,000. Uh, I get that he might be too high end for some since the Nuggets are going to be good and he just had a standout rookie campaign. Uh, but you have Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. coming back. How much are they actually going to trust him? I'd argue a whole bunch after trading Monte Morris. There's also going to be times where maybe Michael Porter Jr. is injured or Jamal Murray has to miss some time too. And so you have to entrust him with a ton of offensive responsibilities. So I'm really, I, I like him as a dark horse pick to win sixth man of the year. You also go back and like only three times over the past decade and a half as a sixth man of the year averaged under 15 points a game. He's someone that I feel like could come in, maybe only play, you know, 20 minutes or something and pump in that many needed to, uh, to win the award. And we are your voters, excuse me, do gravitate towards the volume scores in those situations. I also have in this discussion, precious Achua with Toronto, uh, did a great job on defense last year, showed a hint of a three point shot and being able to do some things around the rim. He's plus 5,000, another Denver nugget, Bruce Brown plus 8,000. If he comes in and really changes their defense and continues to hit the three ball and maybe works sweet, sweet magic in the two-man game with Nikola Jokic, I could see him getting some love. And then Otto Porter Jr. at plus 20,000 for the Raptors is also intriguing. Their bench was decimated last year. You probably can't count on OPJ to 
play more than 20 to 25 minutes. But if he's hitting his threes and really preserving the, the Raptors positionless defensive integrity, keep an eye on him. Finally, I don't know whether, I don't know what the Thunder rotation is going to look like, but Alexei Pokashevsky, I felt like his game at points last year really started to come together. And this could be a higher end prospect than people really consider. If he's coming off the bench, absolutely keep an eye on him for sixth man of the year. Most improved player. I'm I my I'm going to hand to God. Tyrese Halliburton was my pick. He is the second. He's laying the second best odds at plus 1200. I guess I didn't realize uh, how high nationally people were on him. I just assumed that many thought he'd fall short of, you know, being a player who can make that superstar leap. I'm glad that they don't. I have my other choice here. My, my top choice is going to be Keldon Johnson with the Spurs at plus 4,000. The extension, I think, shows they are invested in him, and that means they're probably going to let him explore more on-ball offensive stuff. I like the progress he made as an off-ball offensive contributor. If he can add more directionality to his drives, just look out for that, and he does give you a ton of defensive malleability. I also have Alexei Pokashevsky here, too, at plus 8,000. Uh, Onyeka Okungwu in Atlanta at plus 3,300. I think they need to trade Clint Capella or John Collins to sort of pave the way for that to happen. But that guy is really good. Um, and the way that he can defend a bunch of different positions, really. He's very he's very portable in that end of the floor. And there's more to him on offense than I think people view him as, yeah, he's a play finisher, but he has kind of like, might have a little floater game, can make these one or two dribble reads as well, in addition to doing all the usual rim runner stuff. And then finally, I have Cam Reddish here. Just This is a shot in the dark because I would like Cam Reddish to pan out. He's at plus 25,000. Okongwu, by the way, is plus 3,300. Uh, but the Knicks, I don't know how much depth they're going to end up trading for Donovan Mitchell, but there might just be more minutes for him if the Knicks trade Grimes, especially if they trade R.J. Barrett. I don't know if he'll ever get the on-ball opportunities to maybe juice his odds in this discussion or juice his candidacy in this discussion. But just the uncertainty surrounding the Knicks and how his role could either grow within New York or maybe if he's traded to Utah, who desperately need wings, and then they give him a crap ton of reps on the ball. I just have him circled here. Defensive player of the year, my top choice, and he is, so my top choice actually wasn't listed. He is off, was Aaron Gordon. Just, you have KCP, Bruce Brown in Denver now. He's going to be in a more fitting role for himself. I could see him being uh, viewed as the primary anchor of that Nuggets defense, even though he's not defending at the point of attack as much. And if they end up having a really good defense, I would just watch him. I settled on Herb Jones since we're warming up to, these stymieing perimeter defenders. He's at plus 6,000. Um, he's just fantastic. He's everywhere all at once at the same time. Incredible. If the Pelicans wind up having a substantially above average defense, which I think is possible, he's going to be cited rightfully so as the primary reason why. And then also just don't Gianobi. Felt like he took a step back as a team defender with Toronto last year. Can still do some dirty, dirty things on the ball. And I think when he's going to be healthier and have just uh, more succession to his game where he's it, it's not a stop and start as the past season was for him with his availability uh, that that goes a long way too so he's at plus 8,000 Herb Jones at plus 6,000 and then Aaron Gordon's off right now maybe he has odds somewhere else but go looking for them and tell me what they are finally most valuable player my pick anyone who's watching on YouTube can tell by the thumbnail Pascal Siakam is at plus 10,000 I'm actually surprised the, sh the odds weren't longer uh, we don't know for sure if he's going to be in Toronto, but I think you can bet against a Kevin Durant trade at this point, or at least say he'll still be in Toronto if they do acquire Kevin Durant. I think the Raptors could contend for a top three seed in the East. There's the Celtics and the Bucks for me, if everyone's at full strength, and then it's wide open everywhere else. I am getting close to like being incredibly high on a full strength Sixers team, though. Pascal Siakam, all NBA player. Like This is someone who really improved his playmaking, the directionality on his half court, offense where he's just a lot more unpredictable. Um, if the threes are falling at a reasonable clip and he continues to play the type of defense that he did last season and the Raptors are really good, I think he'll end up getting a ton of shine in this discussion. I also have Paul George at plus 8,000. I have, and then I have SGA, Shea Gilts Alexander at plus 15,000, just to tell you how high I am on him. If he's, he's going to have agency, complete agency over the Thunder offense. If they wind up being like a play-in team or something, I just wonder if there's the, oh, should we consider him? And in a similar vein, this is just to show you how high I am on Cade Cunningham, plus 30,000. I don't think the Pistons or the Thunder are ultimately good enough for them to be in real consideration with the way that MVP votes work out. But I'm just, in I'm incredibly sky high on those two players. And I also have Rudy Gobert at plus 50,000. If the Timberwolves wind up being a dominant regular season team, on the back of a dominant defense, 
he might get a lion's share of the credit more so than an Anthony Edwards or Carl Anthony Towns. And just when you inject a new player into that type of situation and you see that material, that wholesale change, um, he's going to have that anecdotal bump. And that does matter in the MVP discussion. One quick note on the MIP. I should have mentioned this before. I steer clear of second-year players. And so if anyone was looking for a Cade Cunningham or an Evan Mobley or Scotty, Bonds, Scotty Barnes there, some of those guys, one, were not dark horses, but... I just tend to steer clear of sophomore. So those are my dark dark horse picks. I'll wrap them up. I'll wrap them up very quickly. My top choice for each category. Coach of the year is I'm going to stick with Mark Dagnall. I don't think Willie Green is high. It's Mark Dagnall or Willie Green. I'm already off the rails. Those will be my top two. Rookie of the year, Ty Ty Washington of the Rockets. Sixth man of the year, Bones Highland of the Denver Nuggets. Most improved player, Keldon Johnson, San Antonio Spurs. Defensive player of the year, I settled settled on Herb Jones of the Pelicans. And then MVP, Pascal Siakam of the Raptors. Last question comes from Mountain Dew 720. A less serious question. Dan Favalli gets to change journalism careers for one NBA season, including offseason and free agency. What new type of job would he enjoy the most or find the most exciting? Local beat writer for favorite team breaking news personality like Wode Shams, supervisor of team media, in-stadium encore personality, national sports anchor, et cetera, stuff like that. One, I appreciate when people ask questions about myself. It makes you, it makes me feel like everyone here cares about me when they're listening to my ramblings. And I've had some very nice compliments thrown at me from Discord, direct messages, and YouTube lately. I appreciate them all. And it's really cool that Mountain Dew 720, even if he's just trying to grease my ego and ask a question, like this. It does make me feel valued and makes me feel like we're really building this community here. Um, my pick would be, I want to be, I can't even say an assistant GM just because of the way titles work now. I want to be the guy right underneath the guy and no, having more intimate knowledge of the Knicks. Like give me Brock Aller of, of, of New York, who is just below Leon Rose. And he's doing a lot of the, as, and Fred Katz of the athletic recently noted this. He's doing a lot of the trade negotiations. I want to be the person that's in that room haggling over the minutia of the deal, knowing what other offers were out there, knowing actually how many phone calls come in and out. Uh, I want to be passing out information by design to reporters who think that they're actually plugged in, but they're being used as, as mouthpieces, uh, which a quick rant there. It's just, I have all like the game is the game at this point, however you feel about Shams and Woj. But I also feel like the reaction to the Knicks, not allowing non in-house media to Jalen Brunson's introductory presser was fucking lame. And I did see a lot of not uproar mixed Twitter, but just reaction like, oh, now people are going to complain about this when it really doesn't matter. Uh, it's tend to be viewed as, do you need access to cover this team? And then also, what are they going to tell you in that press conference? They're never going to give away trade secrets or real answers. I saw a lot of people say too that there just would have been a lot of Donovan Mitchell questions at the Jalen Brunson introductory presser. I don't care. Access needs to be part of the business. And I, I do think that as someone who doesn't think access is the end-all be-all, depending on the way you cover the league, I just feel like there are people that cover specific teams or root specific teams that don't realize how they're used by certain sources of those specific teams or from agent player agents or player parties um, to further agendas. And they think that they're plugged in and that they've done something on this almighty level. I'm not, this isn't even a sub text at anyone, a sub rant at anyone in particular, but it, it is notable that the Knicks actively don't seem to want the media to cover them It's or have access. And it, it's just shameful. It doesn't, I agree. They're not going to give away anything substantial at the press conference. Force them to face the questions though, because you know what? The people who attend those press conferences or who are going to ask those questions, they're at least going to, there are people, even if you don't like them, will ask the tougher questions. They won't be fluff or yeah, okay, is there, do some media outlets, I don't think anyone actually has an anti-Knicks agenda. There are probably people that are very hard and low on the organization, and just myself included with how they operate, even though I've been impressed with a lot of their transactions under the Leon Rose regime. But there should absolutely be access to an introductory presser like that, and they should have to face the Donovan Mitchell trade rumor discussions because that's going on right now. They should have to face the tampering questions, even if they don't give you an answer. That's a process that uh, should be gone through and just because you've asked questions via Zoom or talked to people within the organization or close to players before, like that's not the same thing. That is not access. There is like that's like quid pro quo on the lowest end. So it's it that bugs me. But more of the story, I would be an assistant GM, I guess we would call it, or just the person 
who is maybe the salary cap expert who is going to do a lot of the trade calls, um, going to come up with a lot of the trade package and like haggle over pick protections and stuff like that. And also just having the intimate knowledge of what's out there. As someone who reacts to trades, who grades trades, I do think a lot of times people, myself included, forget that teams aren't actively taking inferior offers. I'm sure it's happened where they have pre-existing ties with someone from another organization. But the um, the Rudy, like the, the Minnesota Timberwolves deal specifically, like they didn't give up that many first round picks just because they wanted to. They gave up that many first round picks because that's what it took to get Rudy Gobert. And we could phrase it as, well, what was the second best offer they had to give up for that? Well, is it really that? Or is it just the Jazz made it perfectly clear, knowing who's in charge of them right now and Danny Ainge, they were fine keeping Rudy Gobert. I want to know the stuff that's never going to get reported behind that or the stuff that's going to get reported. You'll, you'll tell it's very clearly one-sided unless we get like this this real tell-all. So yes, I would be, thank you for that question. That was fun, but that's what I would be. And preferably I would be that assistant GM or the trade negotiator salary cap expert for a team that an expansion team in San Diego, because that is one of my dream places to live. There's everything you need to answer, ask for. Thank you everyone for sticking with me through this mailbag. Uh, if you have not already, please subscribe to us, hit the like and subscribe buttons on YouTube and find us, follow us, download every episode, wherever you get your podcast until next time and as always i leave you with a shout out to the one the only the indelible frank neilakina